Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. When asked, the majority of the population has some sort of weight loss goal they would like to achieve, whether it is just a couple of pounds or a couple hundred pounds which always brings up the question of why people start to pack on extra body fat in the first place. This often leads us into the research around metabolic health and what factors can influence the development of conditions such as obesity or diabetes. And while checking your glucose levels is pretty easy to do and is relatively inexpensive, it might not be the best measurement for risk factors for diabetes or obesity. What's up, everyone? I'm Brian Carroll, and I'm here to help people move more, eat well, and be adventurous. And today, I have Dr. Ben Bickman on the show to talk about the important markers we need to focus on for weight loss and controlling diabetes. He walks us through a ton of valuable information in this episode, so let's jump straight into the interview. Dr. Ben Bickman earned his PhD in bioenergetics and was a postdoctoral fellow with the Duke National University of Singapore in metabolic disorders. Currently, his professional focus as a scientist and associate professor at BYU is to better understand the role of elevated insulin in regulating obesity and diabetes, including the relevance of ketones in mitochondrial function. Thank you for coming on to the show, Ben. Hey, Brian. Thanks for reaching out and thanks for the invitation. Glad to be on here. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you, uh, especially as we start diving into uh, insulin and the response within the body. But before we uh, do that, let's talk more about you know, who are you? Let's learn more about your background. Yeah, sure. So I I guess the most important part of who I am is a husband and a father, but that's the kind of boring stuff. But it is priority number one. Everything else I do is just to make me better in those two categories or in those two aspects of who I am. But beyond that, um, I am uh, my primary teaching role as a professor is to teach a class called pathophysiology, which is basically the sick body. So it's the students, by the time they've come to me, they have learned about, they've learned how the organ systems work, how the liver works, the lungs, the heart, et cetera. Then they come to me and we look at how, how these organs are working when they're not working well. And that actually really influenced, teaching that class influenced my uh, perspective as a scientist because I'd long, I'd long been studying this condition called insulin resistance. It had been years already by that time. And, and then I was seeing how relevant it was in all of these other disorders that, uh, that I never would have imagined uh, the connection. So that's actually what was the basis of, of the book that we can get into later. But yeah, so that's my professionally, I'm a scientist who studies metabolic health. I study fat cells, um, energy use in the body. And, and then as a, as a professor, I teach that course that I already outlined. Perfect. And um, so it's interesting that you talk about insulin because a lot of people, they talk about blood sugar levels and whatnot in the body. And insulin is just uh, one part of the response in uh, regulating blood sugar levels. But you like to go a lot deeper into insulin. So first off, can you talk about what is insulin and what is its purpose in the body? Yes. Yeah. Insulin is a hormone that is flowing through our blood all the time at varying levels. And I do mean all the time. Even if someone's not eating any carbohydrate or fasting and not eating anything, there's always insulin that's trickling from the pancreas and moving through the blood. Unless 
we're talking about a type 1 diabetic. In type 1 diabetes, that is a disease of no insulin. That is the primary disorder. So they have to, of course, treat themselves with insulin injections. So that's the hormone itself. The purpose of insulin is uh, multiple. It's myriad. There, there, are almost, there, there are too many purposes to really feasibly outline. I would say that the most obvious is the one you already mentioned in that insulin is a regulator of blood glucose levels. But it's almost, and I can elaborate on that more, but I would just say ahead of that, it's a little unfair to insulin because it actually has its hand in thousands of chemical reactions and it does different things at literally every single cell in the body. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about obscure neurons in the brain, liver cells, um, cells of the gonads like the testes or the ovaries or the bones or the joints or the muscles. Every single cell in the body has insulin receptors and thus insulin is telling it to do something. And whatever that something is depends on the cell. Now, having said all that, uh, insulin's primary role, as we classically understand it, is to regulate glucose. If glucose levels start to go up, that is not healthy if it stays high. Indeed, it's actually lethal if it stays too high for too long. It can kill you. And so insulin comes up and it basically opens doors in cells of the body, like muscle cells and fat cells, most especially. In so doing, it's these glucose doors. And then the glucose can come rushing from the blood, move into those tissues, and then glucose levels come back down, and then insulin will come back down, having done, in this case, its job, at least one of its jobs. So that's insulin. And, but that paradigm is, is pretty important because it helps us start to get some insight into just how relevant insulin is. Insofar as insulin's, one of insulin's main jobs is to control glucose, you'd mentioned that people typically look at blood glucose and that perspective is, is part of what's put us in this kind of terrible metabolic situation that we find ourselves in. And that's most obviously appreciated in the context of the disease type 2 diabetes. So where someone could be coming into the clinic and they're only ever looking at their glucose levels. The, the, the physician, the nurse, the doctor's office is only looking at their glucose. And year over year, glucose is staying normal. But insulin is, be, is having to work harder and harder and harder with every passing year. And so they have normal glucose, but they have dramatically elevated insulin. Indeed, insulin is several times higher than it was before. This situation of high insulin and normal glucose is insulin resistance in a nutshell. But because we only look at the glucose levels, we ignore the insulin, we don't detect it. And then it's only 10 or 20 years later, now the body has become so resistant to its own insulin, now and it can no longer control glucose and the glucose levels start to climb and then we detect it as type two diabetes. That's the problem. We look at it as a glucose problem. We look at these metabolic disorders as glucose disorders when we should be looking at them as insulin disorders. If we look at them as insulin disorders, we are not only actually looking at the origins of the disease, an actual cause of the disease, but we detect it years a bit earlier than we would otherwise. So if someone is uh, suffering from high insulin levels for decades, uh, at some point, can they basically get like some type of pancreas fatigue where it just can't keep pushing out insulin? Yeah, yeah. So there is this idea, um, very, very commonly um, expressed, that in type 2 diabetes, the glucose has started to go up because the, the pancreas has petered out. 
it's like you like you're saying it's basically run out it run out of steam it can't do it anymore and so the insulin levels drop and then the glucose levels spike there is some truth to that but let me kind of go back to this kind of pantomiming it all out this is the original paradigm of just sort of run of the mill insulin resistance normal totally normal glucose but elevated insulin the glucose levels can start to climb when the insulin is still absolutely elevated. The insulin hasn't budged. It's kind of reached the ceiling of maximal output from the pancreas. Even still, glucose has started to climb. So the hyperglycemia starts, the high glucose starts even in the midst of the elevated insulin. And then eventually in some type 2 diabetics, the insulin can come down to, let's say, here, and then the glucose levels spike even more. But what's important in type 2 diabetes, it does not go to here, you know, zero as I'm kind of acting this out. Although, Brian, I should ask, actually, are we even are you even using video for the podcast? It's audio only. Oh, so then here I am making a fool of myself, but at least it's helping you understand. So so all the listeners haven't been able to see me moving my hands all around, but hopefully my dialogue has has filled in the blanks and you can use your imagination of a bald freckled guy waving his arms around. So, yeah. So, so the idea is in type two diabetes and it is, it is, I would say kind of partly myth. Um, it's that the pancreas gives up and it stops making insulin. That is not true. There's, it is always making insulin in type two diabetes. And indeed it stays several times higher than it was when it uh, compared to normal conditions. So the insulin, the bank, the pancreas does not give out uh, or give up, and and peter out. That that is that just doesn't happen. That is what happens with type one diabetes. It does not happen with type two. So if someone goes in for a standard lab uh, test, lab work, um, there's always a glucose uh, component to it where they mm -hmm. check your fasting glucose. But usually, uh, insulin is not checked. So what are your favorite um, insulin uh, lab tests that you like to run? And yeah. what are you looking for with that? Yeah, you're exactly right, Brian. Uh, insulin is not commonly measured. And that is, I think, uh, a, a tragic oversight on our part. It's a tragic oversight of of conventional medicine. But it, it just goes back to the kind of glucose-centric paradigm that we have in medicine. We just look at the glucose and we just assume insulin is going to track with glucose. So why measure insulin? If your glucose is measured, where well, your insulin will be too. And that is just not the case. So how what can someone do? The most obvious solution is to just measure your insulin. And if insulin is somewhere under, let's just be generous and say it's under, you know, around 10 microunits. Of, uh, of of per mil of blood, and that, that's a common measurement or common unit in the U.S. If it's under 10 microunits per mil, the person's generally doing all right, and their insulin sensitivity is very likely quite good. Now, however, as we just mentioned, it is uncommon to get insulin measured from a blood test, and so an alternative is uh, readily available, and it is actually still fairly effective, uh, and that is the looking at some of the lipids that are commonly measured on a blood panel or from a blood test. So what a person does is look at their triglyceride level and they divide it by the HDL cholesterol level or number. So that triglyceride number divided by HDL cholesterol, if that dividend, if that, if that number 
that you get from that ratio of triglycerides divided by HDL, if it is less than 1.5, that's a good sign that indicates a person is very likely insulin sensitive. If it's higher than that 1.5 cutoff, that's a, that's a warning sign or even a bad sign that the person is likely insulin resistant. So if you see those uh, that ratio coming back on your uh, standard lab tests, then that could be a good time to um, further test insulin. Or would you go straight into we have a problem here? Oh, yeah, I think that's pretty safe. That's a, that's a very good warning light. Um, and it's time to make an intervention. It's, it tracks very well with insulin resistance. Uh, but I mean, cert- a, cer- a person certainly could then insist on getting insulin. But I would say, don't wait for that to come in. Start making some changes. Okay. Um, is there, and I don't know if this is even possible, is there any way in possibly in the future when someone tests their blood sugar or glucose levels, with a you know their finger prick, if that would also check for insulin levels, uh, that is that is a long pursued item, Brian. It is <laughs> it's extremely um uh, it it is it is a, a holy grail of of diagnostics. No, I don't see that day coming soon. The difference being, it is easy to measure a nutrient in the blood from whole blood, like like glucose or ketones or lactate, where you prick the finger and you can have enzymes on that little stick and it'll g- then give you a number. It'll quantify it as a number of uh, an amount of that molecule in the blood. When it comes to any hormone, insulin included, there is just no rapid at-home way to do that from whole blood yet. I'm sure the day will come, um, yeah, but it's not gonna be soon. Bummer. Yeah, if only. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you had mentioned, um, you know, when insulin is going through the system, then your body is basically trying to open up cells and you said muscle cells and fat cells to try and push the glucose somewhere in out of the bloodstream and into those cells. Um, is it is it more likely to go to a fat cell than a muscle cell or are they equal? And then what happens? Like, can they be overfilled? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, just because of normal body mass levels and, and metabolic rate, muscle is the main consumer of that glucose. It is the key glucose sink or disposal. Of course, however, if someone has much more fat mass, uh, then, then fat begins to consume more and more of that. And indeed, fat cells take up a very hearty amount of glucose and are very inclined to store it, fat cells will convert it into into fat to be stored. Um, and the liver helps along with that process. The liver will also pull in glucose and convert it to fat when insulin is high and then release that fat as triglycerides actually to be carried on, on LDL cholesterol um, molecules. So um, there, there is muscle is the main consumer of that glucose, but of course, fat consumes that well. The muscle can't really become over full with energy. Um, at least uh, that, that's a tricky question. I mean, energy itself is a difficult concept to define when it comes to biological organisms. Um, but so let's, so the muscle cell, uh, it, it is, doesn't really get too full because it's just using energy so readily, although it can store glucose as glycogen and it can store fat as triglycerides. It does both. Um, and then it uses those. The fat cell in, uh, in stark contrast has a very clear um, adverse response to excess energy 
uh, if we want to call it that. Um, and I'll elaborate. So if someone is consuming sufficient calories, so they have enough energy to store and insulin is elevated, then the body will be storing energy. Those are two, I would say, critical factors. There must be sufficient calories to store and insulin must be elevated, telling the body to store the energy because that's one of insulin's less appreciated uh, roles or effects in the body. Insulin tells the body what to do with energy. And what that message is to virtually every cell is store energy. Now, if we're telling fat tissue to grow, you know, if someone's eating enough and insulin is elevated, then we're going to start storing energy as fat. Our fat tissue, you know, you could take someone, you could take two guys and you're, jig you're pinching both of their bellies as they're getting fatter and you're seeing it growing, growing. That guy's belly's getting big and that guy's belly's getting big. They can be getting fat through two different ways. But often it's a bit of a mix um, of both of these processes. So I wouldn't want someone to hear me describe this and think that it's going to be totally one or the other. Um, but just for the sake of simplicity, I'll describe it that way. Uh, you can have someone who's getting fat by, by making more fat cells. That's a process called hyperplasia. And so we would say these are hyperplastic fat cells. That just means we're getting more and more cells. What's important about that is that none of the fat cells ever become too big. They always have room to continue to grow. And because insulin is so good at telling fat cells to grow, these fat cells never get very big. They always have vacancy because there's always more fat cells moving in. And so they keep growing and they keep responding to insulin. And the fat cells stay very insulin sensitive. That's a good thing. And so the rest of the body stays very insulin sensitive um, as a result because the fat cells are typically the first cells to fall, so to speak, when it comes to insulin resistance. In contrast, another way of getting fat is through hypertrophy. So the individual fat cell number is set. There are no more fat cells than before. It's just that each individual fat cell then as a result is, is that each individual fat cell is growing bigger and bigger. That is hypertrophy. So we would say those are hypertrophic fat cells. And as the hypertrophic fat cell is essentially reaching maximum size, it knows it cannot grow any bigger. But because insulin is still high because of how the person is eating, insulin keeps telling the fat cell to grow bigger. So the only thing the fat cell can do in order to survive is stop listening to insulin. And so the fat cell becomes insulin resistant. And so even, at, even though insulin is telling it to pull in um, fat and make more fat, it starts to leak fat out. That is something normally insulin would tell a fat cell not to do. Insulin inhibits fat breakdown. But this hypertrophic fat cell says to hell with you, insulin. I need to start releasing some of this fat that you're force feeding me to take in. I'm going to start leaking some of it out. That is an insulin resistant fat cell. And now as it is leaking out this fat and it's leaking out other molecules um, as a result of getting too overfull to fat itself, you know, the fat fat cell, then the rest of the body starts to become insulin resistant. But it all started, the first domino to fall was the hypertrophic fat cells. And those fat cells get, you know, four or five times bigger than normal fat cells do. And again, insulin is just, it is essential to that process. Interesting. So if it's leaking, if the fat cell is leaking out fat, is that where the triglycerides start to uh, become more elevated on blood work? Ah, uh, no. 
no. uh, because the, the the what the fat is the, the fat that the fat cell is leaking is free fatty acids, mm. not triglycerides, and that that is an important distinction. Although uh, I don't know that it's um, sufficiently important to elaborate beyond this. So the elevated triglycerides are coming from the liver. The liver is packing up glucose and fats and 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 packaging them into triglycerides and then releasing those into the blood. Whereas the fat being leaked from the fat cell is broken down triglycerides and those in that case are just free fatty acids. Got it. So as the body becomes um, insulin resistant and the muscle uh, fibers and the muscle cells are also becoming insulin resistant, can you start to get fatigue if you're uh, not actually able to get that energy that you need if into your muscle cells? Yeah, yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, The muscle is remarkably greedy and remarkably capable of getting the energy that it needs. So even if a muscle is insulin resistant, it is so determined to get an energy that as it starts working or or contracting, like if someone gets up and starts walking, for example, just the contraction of the muscle cell opens those same doors that insulin normally opens. And so the muscle, like I said, is so greedy for energy that it has insulin independent ability to pull in glucose or insulin independent glucose uptake. Uh, Now, that, however, is not the case with a tissue like the brain, for example, where if the brain starts to become insulin resistant, its glucose uptake is compromised somewhat. And then the brain can sense this energy reduction and then stimulate you to eat more. This is based on some of the work by a guy named David Ludwig out of um, from Harvard. He has some cool studies on that and a neat book called Always Hungry um, that I would refer people to. So the the brain gets starved of energy and it's trying to tell yep. you to eat more food. Um, Even though now Brian, that that's relevant, that's relevant because the brain is thinking the body's running out of energy, but we're actually mm-hmm. swimming in a sea of energy. We have right. hundreds of thousands of calories stored as fat. We have plenty of glucose in the blood. There's no reason for the brain to sense or to 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 think um, that there's a need for energy. There's no reason for the brain to drive us to want to eat more. It's just it's not getting the right messages. Hmm. Yeah, so it's impacting the entire body at that point. Yeah, right. That's right. Um, so for people that are becoming obese and that. Uh, you know, they're becoming more and more resistant. What can you do to help them to start to establish a better energy uh, balance in their body, start reducing that insulin response and start reducing the glucose in their system? Yeah, yeah. I would say um, one way to help kind of get off that roller coaster is to become more metabolically flexible. And that's a kind of clever sounding term. And what I mean by that is the person needs to help their body remember how to burn glucose and fat. And so that is the idea of metabolic flexibility. Glucose in the blood and fat in the blood are the two main fuels for the body, you know, really fueling virtually what every cell is doing um, to, to maintain its, its functions. And so by extension, those are the key fuels for the body. Most people, because of chronically elevated insulin and insulin resistance, they're stuck in they're stuck burning glucose as the primary fuel. Even when they're fasting, they're still you know they could go six or eight or twelve meals or twelve hours after a meal, and they're still really burning 
much more glucose than the average person. And in the average person's case who doesn't have high insulin, although the average person now does actually have high insulin and is insulin resistant. So let's just not, I won't say average. In an insulin sensitive person, they eat a meal, they go to glucose burning mode for a couple hours, and then a few hours later, they've shifted to fat burning where fat is now providing most of the energy for their body. So they're flexible in that they can shift between these two primary fuels. So if someone wants to get out of that metabolic inflexibility, this being stuck in glucose burning mode, um, they need to lower their insulin. And the solution is actually quite simple. It is, it is to simply avoid the foods that spike insulin the most because the insulin is elevated as a result of the foods that the person is constantly bringing into the body. And if these foods are rich in starch and sugar, which will convert into blood glucose, then insulin has no choice but to stay elevated. Then as the body becomes progressively insulin resistant, the insulin continues to stay elevated and continues to go higher and higher. So the key to, to break that cycle is to simply cut, or, or I'll, I, let me rephrase that, it is to control carbohydrates and avoid the most insulin spiking, glucose spiking carbohydrates, focus on the more fibrous, like vegetables especially, and then even I would say most fruits, I could say that just to be diplomatic. And, and, then, and then now all of a sudden glucose levels can come down, insulin can come down, and the body's sensitivity to insulin starts to get better. And then they can start shifting between fuels again. They're metabolically flexible again. So people's glucose responses can, uh, from person to person, can be different for the same food. So is that <laughs> same idea going to happen with insulin as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yes. So you could take someone who's very insulin sensitive and they eat a bagel, their glucose and insulin levels come up and down and they're right back down to normal in two hours. You take someone who's insulin resistant, they eat that exact bagel same bagel, not the exact one that that other guy just ate because he already ate it. They eat an equal, a comparable bagel and their blood insulin and glucose can be elevated for four hours and have gone three or four times higher than the other guys. So what about a stress response? Say someone has like a food allergy, sensitivity, anything like that. They consume that food. Now they have a stress response in the system as well. Uh, how does that influence this whole paradigm? Yeah, so stress is absolutely relevant when it comes to glucose control and insulin levels. Uh, any stress, actually, whether it is a disease stress, whether it is emotional stress or, or a physical stress like sleep deprivation or poor sleep, all of those, uh, any stressful event in the body is is typified by an increase in the stress hormones. And those stress hormones, the main stress hormones are cortisol and epinephrine or adrenaline. Um, that's another name for it. Those, one of the key actions of those hormones is to increase blood glucose. And, and that's, so that, that's why a poor night of sleep, you wake up the next day, those stress hormones are higher. Your blood glucose is absolutely going to get higher. That's also why you get out of bed that next day and your, your blood pressure is going to be higher. It's because the stress hormones have kind of amped up your, your sympathetic nervous system. It's, it's keeping your blood pressure higher. So a stressful response will drive up blood glucose. And if it is, if it is a chronic stress, um, uh, you know, where cortisol and epinephrine are always being spiked, then the body does start to become insulin resistant. In fact, quite quickly, quite quickly. Hmm. Interesting. 
Okay, so the other question, so a lot of this is um, in response to someone that is working their way towards becoming a type 2 diabetic. What about yeah. those with type 1 diabetes? How does this change for them? Yeah, so with type 1 diabetes, it is a unique situation where they are exquisitely aware of every little piece of insulin that they put in their bodies because it has to come from their syringe. One of the great myths of type 1 diabetes, one of the great tragedies is that type 1 diabetics are told, eat whatever carbohydrates you want, just cover it with insulin, they'll say. So if you want to eat that chocolate cake, you do it by golly, and just make sure you put in enough insulin to cover it. That sets up a type 1 diabetic for daily failure. It is It puts them on this roller coaster of of these incredible peaks of glucose, and then these deep drops in glucose. And it makes the type 1 diabetic, it puts them on this roller coaster of constantly trying to achieve normal glucose levels that they almost never do. The truth is, in either type 1 diabetes, which is a disease of too little insulin, or type 2 diabetes, a disease of too much, those are both states of poor response to glucose or a glucose intolerance. The body isn't metabolizing glucose very well anymore in those diseases. So don't so so avoid it. Control it. Don't base your diet on the one macronutrient that your body is having a hard time clearing. And thankfully, there is zero biological need for glucose consumption in humans. Humans have zero imperative, zero, there's nothing essential about dietary carbohydrates. All the glucose that we have in our blood that we need to live, because we do need glucose in our blood, we make, the liver can make everything we need. It is an absolute myth of, for anyone to state that the body needs to eat carbohydrate. That should not be confused with, that myth should not be confused, confused with the fact that the body needs glucose in the blood and it can make all that it needs. So again, I'm, I, and I wouldn't want to be misunderstood. I'm not telling people to not eat any carbohydrate. I'm not saying that. But if someone listening to this is a diabetic or is worried about a diabetic, cares for a diabetic, don't let the one macronutrient that they can't work with well be the, the bulk of the diet. Instead, focus on protein and fat, which have minimal, little to no effect on glucose and thus little to no effect on insulin. You know, in other words, you, you would have to give the insulin injections can just plummet in a type 1 diabetic. They may go from taking 50 or 60 units of insulin per day down to 10. And it only needs, you know, one or two shots for the whole day and they're good to go. And that is a phenomenal change in their lifestyle, not to mention financial savings for that person. And this has been published. We know that as a type 1 diabetic adopts a low carbohydrate diet that is higher in protein and fat, they spend almost all the time in normal glucose range, normal glycemia. And for a type 1 diabetic, that is the goal. And it is hard to do when, you're, when your diet is based on carbohydrates. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I was in a bookstore and I was going through the, you know, the nutrition and health section. And I found, I believe it's the American Diabetes Association. Um, mm -hmm. They had books in there. And so I was curious. I'm like, okay, let's see what they're talking about what type of recipes they have. And it's all these super high carb. I didn't see yeah. a single recipe that was less than 100 grams of carbs. It's and a racket, it, Brian. It, yeah, it, it's I, amazing. I don't know. It is an unethical racket. And I can only assume that that has become the dogma for that organization. I, I hate to say this lest I be accused of kind of being a 
tinfoil hat nut job, but there must be some financial incentive for them to continue to promote such an an asinine view uh, in one that has been shown to be false. In 1987, one of the most famous diabetes researchers, which is to say a man who's not famous at all, he published a paper uh, revealing that if you put a type 2 diabetic on a diet that perfectly adheres to the policies of the American Diabetes Association, and they haven't really changed, they get worse. We know it. We know that it happens. And I would encourage anyone who's curious about this, look up studies on PubMed or Google Scholar, look up randomized trials, putting people on low-fat diets, which is the typical dogmatic approach. It's low-fat, low-calorie. Have them compare that. Find studies that have compared low-fat with low-carb diets, and the low-carb diet wins every single time. Yep. Yeah, anyone that has um, diabetes could probably tell you that they are paying a lot of money out of pocket for the treatments that they have to go through. And that's with insurance as well. So there's definitely financial backing involved there. Yes, yes, yes. Well said there. There we have to be cynical when it comes to advice that is so clearly defying reason. Yep. Um, So let's see, where do we want to go with this? Because so uh, Insulin has a huge impact on our health. It's something that is not being checked enough. Um, We should start looking at that, but we do have uh, the triglycerides and HDL number that we can start looking at if we do have just regular standard uh, lab work that we could take a look at. Um, We're starting to recognize that we might have some type of insulin response uh, that could become more problematic. You've given some ideas on ways to start controlling that. Um, and you've also talked about, you know, carbohydrates are not necessary. They can be helpful in certain ways, like getting your veggies and that type of stuff. But consuming excess glucose can have a lot of impact for people that will say are um, a lot heavier. Their, you know, their lifestyle is eating in an unhealthy way. How do you get them to start making those changes when they've spent most of their life not eating that way, not living a certain way, but they're getting to that point where they're recognizing, like, I have a health crisis and I need to take care of this. Yeah, yeah. So I appreciate you bringing this up. So to me, the the concepts, the principles of improving insulin sensitivity and all the benefits that come come with that, like weight loss, improved cognition, you know, improved improved thinking, improved lipid levels, lower heart disease risk, improved fertility. These principles are are simple. And in fact, let me even express them simply: control carbohydrates, prioritize protein, and then d- fill all remaining calories with fat. I mean, that to me, that is the trifecta, a simple rule for each of the macronutrients. These are simple ideas, but they are not easy because the one, that very first pillar of control carbohydrates immediately starts to deal, I believe, with individual addiction. This is the thing that people crave. It's the carbohydrates. It's, it's something that is, you know, no one is sitting around on a Friday evening watching a show at home thinking, uh, I want a plate of scrambled eggs, you know, or boy, I could really, I really just need a sirloin steak right now. It doesn't happen. People don't crave protein and fat. They crave something sweet and gooey or salty and crunchy, and that is going to be built on 
easily or, or uh, very processed carbohydrates, easily digested starches and sugars that is going to spike glucose and then subsequently spike insulin. So we're dealing with addictions. And so when it comes to, the, to, to these food addictions, there is no great advice. At least I don't believe there is. Um, maybe I would simply in, in all humility offer one because I do appreciate the challenge here. It would be this cliche response. Don't shop hungry. If you can win the battle, the dietary battle, if you can win that battle in the grocery store, then you're going to win it at home. Because when you are craving that food on a Friday evening or any evening, any evening, it doesn't have to be weekend. If you're craving something junky on any, on any evening, which is almost always when the cravings really kick in, if it's not in the home, you're going to weather that storm. You're going to fight that temptation so much better than you would otherwise. If it is in the home and you got that pantry chock full of junk, good luck. You'll lose that fight every night. It takes an, an incredible amount of discipline. Not that some people don't have it. There are absolutely people who can get through that. But if we're talking about someone who is metabolically unhealthy and overweight, I, I very much suspect there is an underlying addiction there. And I do say that with nothing but compassion. I am. I really do mean that. Um, it just means the sooner a person can be honest about their their addictions with food, then the sooner they can start to address it. And again, I believe one of the most practical ways to address it is make sure you've eaten something really good and healthy before you go shopping. Um, you know, based on those three principles, eat some steak and eggs, then go shopping, and and you will just have so much better discipline, and you won't bring it into the home because once it's in the home, every evening it'll be calling out your name. And, and it will be drawing you to it. What a good point. Because, I mean, we eat really healthy, but if we go to the store and we are hungry, everything, it looks amazing. So we're just like, we have a list. Stick to the list. Don't look at anything else. But it definitely calls to you for sure. Oh, my heavens. And it's, it's deliberate. You know, it's at the ends of the aisles. You can't, even if you're shopping around the outside of the grocery store with where all the good stuff is, and avoiding the middle part of the grocery store, you can't help but see those things on the ends of the aisles. And if you're hungry, even me, as long as I've been doing this and as much as I know, you know, my brain is shouting at me, don't put that in the cart, you big idiot. But I, I just grab it and I think, yeah, it's going to be okay. I can control myself. But I know there's another little part of me that says, no, you can't. You just put a box of cereal in that thing. You're going to eat that whole bloody box this evening. <laughs> and I can easily when it comes to cereal, I can, I can eat above my, my body weight. You know, I can, I can eat up and do a different weight class, I think. Well, the other thing we know is they make those foods very addicting and the with a satisfying crunch and then the melt off and yeah, they, they know how to hack it's a your science. brain. Basically. It's a science, man. Yep. Well, Ben, is there any other things that you want to make sure we touch on before we wrap up here? Well, I would say I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate the time here and another kind of audience for me. Um, you guys, anyone listening, you've been you've been given a sort of primer, a little elementary version of what insulin resistance is. Um, I let me emphasize the relevance of this. Uh, it is the single most common health disorder in the world. Most definitely, the most common health disorder in the U.S. Potentially affecting up to 88% of all adults. And that is just a shocking number. The problem, why it's so 
dangerous is that we don't recognize it. We mistake it for all these other chronic diseases. We look at the person who has infertility or early stage Alzheimer's disease or, um, or hypertension, and we think, oh, well, they just have hypertension or they just have, you know, budding Alzheimer's disease. No, no, they don't. They actually have insulin resistance. And all these things you're seeing are simply manifestations of the insulin resistance. So question what you think you know about your health and, and, and assume or, or wonder whether there might be some underlying insulin resistance. And you will probably very much, you'll probably be quite accurate in that. And then start addressing the insulin resistance. And then you will be pleasantly surprised as the disease that you thought had nothing to do with insulin resistance suddenly starts to get better. And, and you know, like, as I said, we kind of touched high level stuff here. Anyone who wants to learn more about it, I actually, I did devote an entire book to it highlighting, defining what is insulin resistance, presenting the, the scope of the problem, um, uh, discussing and reviewing all the diseases that come from it, and then even what to do about it. You know, a whole section of the book, what to do, uh, what to do with that insulin resistance. And the name of the book is Why We Get Sick. And it's, you can buy it anywhere. Well, people can find you on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Bickman PhD. Um, you also have a product. Do you do you want to talk about that? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I don't want to sound like a shill here. So uh, I'll, I'll mention it and try to be objective about it. Um, one of the challenges of adopting a low carb diet uh, is is that you have to eat real food, and that that's actually a good challenge, but it is a challenge. And so I, to me. I, I just confess, I kind of just like shakes. And and so I think there's always room um, for a shake because people either like them or they just like the convenience of them. So um, working with two of my brothers, uh, and I have, I have a lot of brothers, so only two of them, um, the three of us, we designed and, and made a, a low-carb, high-fat, high-protein shake, um, uh, you know, built on, on what I believe to be the best science, the best ideas, the best ingredients. Um, and anyone who wants to learn more about it, please go to a website called Get Health. And health is spelled H-L-T-H. It's kind of a fun way to spell it. Get Health, H-L-T-H dot com um, to learn more and, and to see what it is. It's pretty amazing because I believe you have 27 grams of protein and 27 grams of fat in the shake, which is, I mean, I I don't think I've ever seen that in any other type of yeah. shake before. So yeah, no, I don't think you have either. It, it's very deliberate, actually. Um, that one-to-one, -one, what you noted was this exact one-to-one -one of protein and fat by mass. And that's, that's roughly what you see in an egg. You know, egg is about one-to-one -one by mass of protein to fat. The reason... I, I built the shake on that on those two pillars <clears throat> is that in nature, protein always comes with fat. It, it always does. It never comes alone. And protein and fat together actually stimulates greater muscle growth than protein alone. This is published in humans. If you give a human a protein load, they do get a bump in muscle growth after a workout. If after the workout, you give them protein and fat in a one-to-one -one ratio like we do, like we did with the shake, you get a bigger muscle bump of muscle growth beyond the protein alone. It's th there's something additive or even synergistic about the two of them together. And, and that's why we built it the way we did. And of course, because of the fat, it's very satisfying. It's satiating, which uh, makes it really a meal. It, it, we, we didn't want it to just be looked at as a protein shake. It is a meal shake. It's built to be that. It's just built also to keep your glucose in check, something we have confirmed repeatedly. 
and and thus keep insulin in check and then help the body just stay in that um, greater state of fat burning. So not only are you helping out the insulin resistance, you are also putting on more muscle. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Win-win. Win. Yep. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you had a lot of fantastic information. We'll have you to have you back again in the future and we can keep diving deeper and deeper. Uh, so thank you. Yep. Oh, my pleasure, Brian. Thanks again for reaching out. I had a great time. I hope the listeners have learned a thing or two. I warned you that this episode had a lot of valuable information. And hopefully you were able to get at least a couple important nuggets of information out of the show. Remember, the entire show notes with transcripts can be found at summitforwellness.com slash 131. So you can refer to any of the links or conversation pieces that we had. And if you know of anyone who would benefit from this information, then make sure to share this episode with them. These health markers are something everyone really should be aware of and have tested on themselves, so they at least have a good baseline to refer back to. Next week, we will continue with the weight loss theme, so let's go learn about my guest, Dr. Lydia Alexander. I am here with Dr. Lydia C. Alexander. Hey, Lydia, what is one unique thing about you that most people don't know? That I am training to be a certified culinary medical specialist, and so what that is is a medical chef. Ooh, what, what entails being a medical chef? Uh, well, it, it entails uh, a whole bunch of training that's uh, both, uh, uh, you know, dietary, so that, you know, in the purview of a registered dietitian, and also in the kitchen, uh, which is uh, as a chef. And so what we do is we look at disease processes and how to uh, reverse them or improve them uh, based on someone's, uh, someone's medical condition. So if you have cancer uh, for instance, and it depends on the type of cancer, we would look at dietary patterns that may be more beneficial for you. Uh, the same for, say, uh, for diabetes and uh, um, and uh, and some, you know, and other uh, conditions that may be inflammatory. And so we would look at, you know, uh, arranging dietary patterns around that. And what is your favorite meal that you've made so far then? Um, my favorite meal, uh, well, I'd say uh, my favorite go-to and also low-cost meal because I think of, uh, you know, ways for my patients like, you know, what you can do that would be reproducible would actually be uh, making uh, uh, spaghetti, uh, you know, uh, spaghetti and meat sauce with a combination of, uh, of turkey or chicken and um, and lentils and so uh, and so the the meat sauce is actually kind of like a 50/50 split between those and uh, and, and incorporates a lot more um, a lot more fiber um, you know the uh, and uh, nutrients as well as um, as vitamins than uh, than a straight up meat sauce and it's also really really affordable and what will we be learning about in our interview together We'll be learning about the specialty of obesity medicine and uh, and how uh, treating the roots, not the fruits uh, of, uh, of obesity uh, and all the chronic diseases that we see in the United States uh, is really the key for uh, for long life and uh, and healthy and a healthy life. And what are your favorite foods or nutrients that you think everyone should get more of in their diet? I would say uh, my favorite uh, my favorite foods and nutrients are uh, well vitamin D for one, but you can get a lot of that uh, from the sun. So that's an interesting nutrient. And if you can see the sun. 
if you can see the sun, so maybe not today. And um, and then uh, uh, B12. And so for those who uh, have a, um, a purely vegetarian and even a um, non-dairy, non-egg diet, I really like nutritional yeast. So that would be an interesting, uh, you know, food uh, to uh, uh, to throw in there. And within that, I'm I'm really into just spicing it up with um, with lots of herbs and lots of spices to create interesting dishes uh, with whole foods overall. And what are your top three health tips for anyone who wants to improve their overall wellness? Um, they would be to focus on neat. To think about what is some, uh, you know, what are some uh, quick, uh, you know, nutritional food hacks that you can incorporate into your into your week, and um, and and to you know maybe start with, uh, you know, with uh, with breakfast or um, or changing up a snack, you know, those three p.m. snacks when um, you just need something to grab and go, and maybe finding, uh, you know, finding something that's you know more whole food forward uh, during that point in time. You'll want to hear about her pillars of health for weight loss. So until next week, keep climbing to the peak of your health.